Hey, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media, and I'm your host here on Left, Right, and Center. This is the show where we take on all the political issues, even those complicated ones that might be dividing your own family these days. So last week brought another mass shooting, this time in Monterey Park, a city east of downtown Los Angeles. The shooter entered the Star Ballroom where Lunar New Year celebrations were taking place. He shot and killed 11 people and wounded nine others. Our guest today is Elise Hugh. She's host of the TED Talks Daily Podcast, a host at large for NPR. She was sole bureau chief for NPR, and we became very close friends while working at NPR together and remain so today. And Elise is also a mom to three daughters who were supposed to perform with their choir at the Lunar New Year Festival in Monterey Park Sunday. The event was canceled because of the massacre the night before. And we should say this was actually the first time in three years that Monterey Park was able to hold its festival because of COVID restrictions in previous years. Um, Elise, I, I just want to start by saying I, I'm so sorry about this attack and um, and how it's impacted you, your family, other parents, friends. And, and I, I, I wonder how you're holding up. Thank you. And I should say it is horrible no matter what community um, is affected. Monterey Park and now Half Moon Bay, which happened yep. also less in than California. 48 hours after, in, yeah. also in California, um, are joining the long list of communities that have been affected by gun violence. Um, the proximity to Lunar New Year was what was especially heavy. And as you mentioned, this festival that often drew as many as 100,000 people from various parts of Southern California to attend and celebrate the Lunar New Year, this festival hadn't happened for years. And finally, they were able to have hold the first day of the events on Saturday. And my girls and I were going to go on the second day. Of course, that was canceled because of the violence. And your girls are are five, seven, and 10. Do I have their ages right? That's right. You are okay. a good friend. I'm a good friend. <laughs> and they, they are half Asian, third generation Chinese, Taiwanese, American kids. I have felt it was really important to carry on the traditions of my ancestors and my grandparents and my parents of marking Lunar New Year. And so they were going to sing in their Mandarin language choir. Uh, my middle daughter had been rehearsing for several weeks and they were quite bummed out to not be able to do it. Um, and it's just, it's awful, right? Because the tragedy itself, I can completely understand this festival being canceled, but then you're compounding that sorrow and grief by not being able to celebrate um, a day that we really wanted to get together and um, mark and uh, start the new year off right, right? And really reset. So really just horrific. What, what were the girls supposed to perform? What was supposed to happen on Sunday? They sing in Mandarin, so they were wearing their red satin um, dresses, the Chinese chi pao, and uh, little pom-poms in their hair because they were going to sing. The, the There's a younger group, there's an older group, and they were going to sing in Chinese, just traditional folk songs. Um, and it's just, there are going to be more Lunar New Year celebrations because thankfully we are in a community where there is a huge Asian American diaspora or a huge Asian diaspora. Um but just for this to be shattered by violence um, is awful. Can you tell me when you first heard about the the massacre? I mean, it, it happened on late on Saturday, and I I suppose you know you you and the girls were just getting ready for for all this you know excitement and, and celebration the next day. 
I didn't know it happened the night before. Hmm. Um, I didn't learn until after getting up and I didn't immediately check my phone because we needed to get up early to get ready for this performance. Yeah. And so I had actually gotten a call or a text from another parent that said, hey, this isn't on because of Monterey Park. And I said, what do you mean Monterey Park? What do you mean about Monterey Park? And that's when I learned about it. And what, what was your first thought? What was your first reaction? I didn't know what had happened. So my first reaction was just to jump in and start doom scrolling. Um, it was really gutting. And obviously, given the fact that Asians and Asian Americans have been terrorized during the pandemic um, <laughs> with the rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans, I guess there was this immediate feeling of a loss of safety and fear um, that this was a hate crime. The news that the shooter was a male Asian was in some ways a relief, but really just resignation um, that, you know, it wasn't a hate crime against an entire group of people, but it's awful just the same. You know, we all have a right to feel safe and, demand attention and resources for crimes perpetrated against any of our communities, um, no matter who harmed us, right? How do you even begin to think about talking to to the girls about this after you realize what had happened, you realize they're not going to be able to perform that day? Like what, I can't even put myself in in your shoes as, as a mom who has to tell them that, that that it's not happening. I went with the truth. But obscured, I left out some details, especially for our kindergartner. Um, I didn't really want to get into the grim, gruesome details uh, at the time. And so the immediate truth was that they had to shut down the festival because at the time there was still a killer at large. And so what we said to the five-year-old was different than the 10-year-old. The 10-year-old saw the news. I think she opened CNN.com or something. Mm. But- um, the five-year-old, we said, we're not going to sing today. The festival was canceled because there's a bad guy and the police need to find him. So they shut down the area, which is true. It's just not the complete picture. And she was really sanguine, actually. She said something like, it's okay. There's other performances. Oh. And I think that's, you know what? It's really lovely and it's rather poignant because... We as human beings do have to balance and hold this really unimaginable violence, which is now becoming more imaginable because it happens nearly every day. Um, but we have to hold the violence and the mundane, the sort of quotidian and go on with our lives at the same time, right? In the same spaces. And so a lot of us moms who now didn't have a place to take our kids, we had blocked out several hours of the day to go to Monterey Park and back we ended up getting together anyway. And all of us were Asian moms. And um, it was an opportunity for us to mark the holiday together, to still find community and to process and just to talk about our fears and talk about what we've been through um, in a way that wasn't like especially heavy. It wasn't like, hey, you know, let's go around in a circle and talk about our childhood experiences. It was really just a way to come together in spite of um, – violence canceling this event. Where did you all gather? We just got together at a park outside of Whole Foods so that we could let our kids play and then go grab a picnic lunch. Hmm. And 
Um, it was really bonding, actually, because I feel like these other moms are in the choreography of my daily life, but we don't ever sit down and really collide and have a conversation. So I got to know these friends, and they became friends in having to do this backup plan. Um, the other thing was that it felt meaningful, right? It felt meaningful to still spend time with members of the Asian American community on New Year's Day with our children, even though they did not perform. And I felt like we were able to snatch some hope and meaning out of the jaws of despair. What what was some of that hope and, and meaning? Can, can you say more about that, like, that, that you know, that, that came out of these conversations you were having with the other moms? One was just connection, right? Um, we otherwise would have just been surrounded by a very sort of festive atmosphere and having to follow our, chase our kids around and buy meat skewers and souvenirs and all sorts of other things and not have been, had concentrated time to actually spend together and talk about our stories. Um, The other is that we were all brought up to believe that how you spend the start of the year sets a precedent for the rest of the year. It's a very superstitious holiday. This is why there's red. This is why um, in China and Taiwan and Hong Kong, they set off firecrackers because they want to ward off all the bad vibes and the evil spirits from the year before. And so really starting off strong was is really important. So we were able to still kind of do that. And that was meaningful to me. You, you're so careful to, to say that so many different communities are, are suffering from gun violence. Um, but but as you noted, I mean, there there has been this hate directed at, at Asian American communities, Asian communities, you know, in particular through COVID. How does that reality play into to what happened here in Monterey Park and, and your reaction to it? I, I feel like this all in the immediate hours and in the immediate sort of um, – blur of what was happening when things were really unclear who actually was the shooter. That was when fear was most heightened because now, now that Atlanta has happened and, you know, we have seen the double digit rise in hate crimes against Asian Americans. And I knew that I think these ballroom dancers were all elderly. I was scared that, you know, the elderly were being targeted because of their race. Um, it, it feels like there was a sense of just dreadful deja vu about it. And so there was a lot of um, existential sort of exhaustion, like, oh no, we're going to have to go through these scripts once again. Um, and then our sense of safety and security is punctured once again. Um, but you know, we have to hold sort of front and center that whether it's 11 dancers who were killed in Monterey park or the seven farm workers who were killed in half moon Bay, We live in a country where these occurrences take place nearly every day. And these victims are no more worthy victims than anyone else. Um, The never-ending bloodshed that we've seen is horrific enough. I mean, you as a journalist have covered so many terrible things, including, you know, I mean, conversations and and debates about, you know, gun control policy. Um, to live through something where there's a personal connection, to to watch your your three daughters affected by this, to have have to cancel a, a, a choir performance, and you know think about that they might have been there when this happened. I mean, does that change how you've seen some of these larger conversations in some way to have this personal connection to it? I feel more grief. I mean, I feel a deeper, more palpable sense of grief, but. 
I have been feeling um, like I've been feeling really angry and despairing about the state of mass shootings in America, gosh, since Columbine, right? Because Columbine happened when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And they are happening more often and they are with greater magnitude. There's something I, I just keep thinking about what you said, you know, the connection that you found outside Whole Foods with those moms and that that connection might not have existed were it not for this tragic event. And there's just something so powerful about that. It's like, we don't want violence and we don't want horrible things to happen, but that connection that comes after, there's there's something really striking about that. Yeah, it's meaningful to me for sure. Um, and... I am not somebody who believes that we have to find silver linings. Um, But we did share an actual experience of grief. And in sharing grief, we also shared an actual experience of hopefulness. Did you learn anything about being a mom from kind of other moms or, or what you went through yourself as a mom through this? Just that we shouldn't parent in vacuums. You know, because it was really confusing to decide on our own, you know, between my daughter's dad and me, like how we wanted to talk about what happened. And we had to decide very quickly. Um, And the same thing played out in all these other homes, right, with all these other families. And being able to get together and share what we did and what we learned and what how our kids responded was really useful because the kids will talk to each other. So we kind of had to have our stories straight because you didn't want you didn't want one of the kids to know a bunch of information and the other to be completely in the dark. And so I I just thought, you know, what I took away from it was that we can often be islands when it comes to our own individual marriages or our individual families and it's always so much more helpful to be connecting and connective with one another because a rising tide can lift all boats. It's very, um, we are part of a web and a part of a network, and we have to remember that. Did the girls get to wear those red satin dresses at some point? They will again Saturday. They're going to perform again. Nice. Oh, that'll be, I bet you're looking forward to that. They sure are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've been talking to Elise Hughes. She's host of the TED Talks Daily Podcast and host at large for NPR. Um, Elise, thank you. I'll be, I'll be thinking about you and, and the girls and I'm glad they're going to be out there performing again, but I, I can't imagine what this was like to go through and uh, I'm, I'm feeling for you. Thanks, David, and thanks for the chat. All right, we're going to take a break and uh, we'll be right back with our regular panel. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center. You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRCKCRW. All right, we are back uh, with more Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green, co-founder of Fearless Media, and we have our regular friends with us. Moa Lathy is back. He's executive director at Georgetown's Institute of Politics and Public Service, was communications director for the Democratic National Committee and advised Hillary Clinton. And Sarah Isger is here. She's a lawyer, spokesperson of the Department of Justice under President Trump, and is now senior editor at The Dispatch. Um, Hi, Mo. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Hey, guys. I know you were both listening to to Elise. I, I guess I just I just wonder how how you both were reflecting to listening to a mom who was impacted by this this tragedy. You know, my reaction was that we don't do enough of that in the news. Just have a conversation, not with the 
the newsworthy side, if that makes sense. We tend to look at these tragedies, and rightfully and understandably so, as through the prism of the victims and the tragedy and then uh, almost always the politics that comes with it. But one thing that's increasingly clear as this happens in more and more communities is how it impacts entire communities. You know, I mean, we've, the fact that these shootings are taking place almost everywhere now, grocery store in Buffalo or a church in South Carolina or a dance hall in California or uh, at a festival in Vegas and God knows how many schools in every part of the country, they impact more than just the victims and the people in those buildings uh, and their families. It impacts an entire community and and that at a time, especially on the heels of COVID, where communities took a big hit, um, it is, I think, important for us to reflect, not to diminish the very important conversations about the victims and about the policies, but also that broader impact, I think, is important. I mean, I want to get into a little a little bit of policy politics here, as, as you said, is, is always important because, you know, part of Politics and public policy is trying to solve problems, and we've we sure as heck have one in this country, and it's awful. Um, and so the LA County Sheriff, I mean, he said that this the shooter in Monterey Park used a, a nine millimeter caliber semi-automatic assault weapon. You have President Biden now coming out and renewing his call for an assault weapons ban. Um, You've Kevin McCarthy, you know, House Speaker, Congressman from California, saying. California already has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, so he wouldn't commit to considering any new gun laws. And he, he said that shootings, you know, Monterey Park, Half Moon Bay were atypical given the older age of the shooters, which just sets up kind of the the stalemate that we so often see. And, and I guess I just wonder, like we had this recent bipartisan legislation that, you know, had some modest changes in gun control, including, you know, some some enhanced background checks for younger people, but doesn't seem like there's any hope for much compromise? Like, could events like this, and I know we've asked this a million times before, change the conversation around around gun control? No, it won't. Um, I wish that both sides were willing to have a very different conversation about gun violence than they are, frankly. Um, because, and you you touched on some of this, that gun was already illegal in California. You can't make it more illegal. You can stiffen the penalties, I suppose. But the real problem that we come back to again and again is actually enforcing the laws we have. And by the way, I'm not against new gun laws. This isn't me saying this is, you know, only an either or something situation. But we know for sure that we're not putting enough resources into, for instance, prosecuting, tracking, keeping data on straw purchasers, um, taking illegal guns off the street and actually prosecuting those crimes. Instead, we're so busy with the talking points about, well, we can make these guns illegal or we can do these for background checks or whatever else. We're not even putting resources into the laws we have. It's, I mean, the red flag laws, how many times were there red flags 
even in states that have red flag laws and they weren't being enforced. I I would just like to see so much more money go to this, but that's not a sexy way to talk about this problem and it doesn't win anyone elections. No, and I'm sure there are people hearing your voice right now and screaming and yelling at their their phones or radios or wherever they're listening because they're like, oh, another person from the right saying it's not about new gun laws, it's about enforcing and not even paying attention to the fact that you said it's about both, which I think speaks to much of the problem. And again, to be clear, I'm not against new gun laws, but it's not going to do you any good if you don't put the money behind the prosecutors and the police to enforce them. So, uh, you know, you can go through any number of gun laws and I'll be like, yeah, I'm fine with that. Sure. That too. Assault weapons ban? Sure. Like I am just, I grew up in rural Texas. So there was a gun in my house. My mother used it to get the armadillos out of her azalea bushes. You know, we, (laughs) we had snakes in our house all the time. So I did grow up in that culture. I understand it. But it's not sacred to me. Um, There's an enormous amount of gun violence, an enormous amount of pain. This isn't, um, yeah, this isn't a sacred cow to me. But I also have worked on the law enforcement side. And I do see where some of these problems are that, no, again, it's just not sexy to talk about. But it's true. But, you know, you bringing up the armadillos and your your rural upbringing, Sarah, I mean, I, I... This is going back, you know, like seven years now, but I I did a reporting trip in Montana and talked to a lot of gun owners on ranches. Um, And I'll never forget this guy, Ron Portner. You know, he was like, he was saying, I'm open to more gun laws that would prevent massacres from happening like Monterey Park. But he said, if you'd let a chink in the armor, then you go to step one, then two, then three, then four. And pretty soon we've got gun control that we really didn't hope would happen. I remember talking to Senator John Tester back then, and he said, you got to find the sweet spot. You have to find where honest people are protected and they have their ability to own and keep a firearm and do our best to try to keep the country safe. Um, But Mo, I want to put this to you. Like uh, someone like Ron Portner, who as soon as he hears about a massacre like Monterey Park, thinks two things, that's horrible and it should never happen again. And Step one in new gun control legislation will eventually mean that I can't keep my rifle on my ranch to fight off armadillos, who I'm not sure live in Montana, but I hope they do. But or whatever he's fighting off. Like, Mo, how how do people who Democrats who believe so passionately in the assault weapons ban and more gun control speak to a rancher like him? I'm not going to disagree with Sarah on this, because I do think part of this is looking at the entire Uh, suite of things that we need to do. Because when you look at all of these tragedies, all of these horrific occurrences that are becoming far too common to the point where there were multiple mass shootings last week within a three-day period, and we couldn't even get to all of them in the news, we've got to figure out how, how to address it. And it's not there is no single answer. I think there are four big things that need to be done. Right? One, we need to invest in better mental health services. Right? Get get to some of these people early. After the Virginia Tech massacre, then Democratic Governor Tim Kaine of Virginia and Republican Attorney General Bob McDonnell of Virginia came together and promoted some bipartisan efforts to address mental health deficiencies in the Commonwealth. That's important. Republicans oftentimes go right to that. They're not wrong to focus on it. That's one part of this. Number two, as Sarah said, we need better enforcement of laws that are on the books. 
Sometimes it's a lack of resources. Sometimes it's a lack of political will. Number three, we need to keep guns out of the hands of people who don't deserve to have them. That means better background checks. That means, again, going back to better enforcement of existing laws. And that bipartisan bill recently, I mean, did some of that to an extent. You're number three, yeah. Not enough. And number four, we need to get more guns off of the streets. It is the thing you hear increasingly from law enforcement when they say, when they're dealing with these in those terrible news conferences, right after these terrible occurrences, you hear them saying, there are too many guns on our streets. It is not wrong to go after that, but it's got to be done in conjunction with, we, we need all four of these things. The problem is, every time one of these happens, one side jumps right to one answer. The other one points out how in the, you know, the unique circumstances in this particular situation wouldn't have been addressed by the latest gun control. Cut it out. If we can't come together when senior citizens are getting gunned down in a dance hall and children are getting done, gunned down in a school, like what the hell is it going to take? And let's just be honest for a second, though. You mentioned lack of enforcement will on the one side. There's lack of enforcement will on the other side when you start talking about what it really looks like to go after illegal guns on the street, because that's where you get into policies like, you know, stop and frisk might be the most controversial, but including prosecuting relatively low-level offenses. They're nonviolent offenses. If you just have an illegal gun as a felon, for instance, and some, you know, activists on the left don't like that. The activists on the right don't want to enforce laws that they think run afoul of the Second Amendment. And so, you know, there's a lack of enforcement will on both sides. There's also a lack of money, though. So, we, I mean, it, is there any way to cut it out, as you said, Mo? Is, I mean, Sarah, is there any way to change this dynamic that you just kind of captured there? Or are, we, are we just stuck in this place? I'm just very frustrated because, you know, as you've mentioned several times, they just passed bipartisan legislation on this. And it doesn't matter one bit. I, it does. And I I'm, I'm, shouldn't be flip about it. But again, unless you actually go enforce it, you can pass all the laws you want. Just ask California how it's going. Or Illinois. Or New York. I mean, the, the strictest states in the country with gun laws are experiencing the same level of gun violence, if not worse. But I also think this is, that's a good example of why a state-by-state piecemeal approach may not work. I don't know all the details of this case. But it ain't hard. And I'm not saying this is true in this case. I just don't know. But it ain't hard to buy a gun legally in one state and drive a couple of hours and use it in another state where you weren't allowed to have that gun. You couldn't have purchased that gun in the first place. This is a whole of society problem now. This is not a state-by-state problem. These shootings are not uh, stopping at the state line. No, but let's be real. Chicago has enough illegal guns to fuel violence in that city for decades at this point without bringing in any illegal guns from anywhere else, though I don't disagree with your point one bit. Yeah, I don't (laughs) care where it's worse than others. It's bad everywhere. It is, we're seeing this in cities. We are seeing this in rural churches. We're seeing this in safe suburban schools. It's a whole of society problem. It's time we treat it like a whole of society problem. I agree with you. Um, And and I'm afraid we're going to be coming back to this topic uh, over and over again. Um, You know, we do have a lot to cover on the show today, so I I do want to turn to another subject, uh, which is what's been happening in the state of Florida. Uh, Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis is standing by his state's decision and the decision by the Board of Education in Florida to 
block an advanced placement course in African-American studies last week. They called the course, quote, woke indoctrination. DeSantis said the course lacks educational value, gets too political because it discusses topics like queer studies, reparations, and abolishing prisons. And we should say this is just the latest effort by, you know, Republican majority legislatures and school boards to influence what its public schools are teaching K-12 through students. Last year, we saw a number of states ban books that they deemed controversial, outlawed so-called critical race theory from curriculums, and restricted teachers from talking about LGBTQ issues with students. But th- this is the first time that a state has actually rejected an AP course. You know, this is a class that allows high school students to gain college credit. And the College Board spent more than a decade developing the course. They piloted it in 60 schools around the U.S. And the board did just announce that they are planning to revise the course. And the board said that was always the plan coming out of this pilot phase. But DeSantis is claiming that his criticism must have led to this, although we haven't seen any evidence of that. But this is drawing criticism from academics, from advocacy groups, from policymakers who say that that Florida's doing nothing short of trying to whitewash history. The Biden administration is calling this in, incomprehensible. Um, and the timing of all this is is just even harder to take, given that Black History Month is is coming up in February. I mean, the two of you both teach at universities and help shape young minds. What, what is at stake in this? Sarah, I'll start with you. So I think your description of this is a little unfair. So for instance, you said he objects to discussion of, you know, queer theory or intersectionality. No, what he's objecting to or stating his objections are is that it's a one-sided presentation. So they the curriculum talks about prison abolition from this far left, you know, reading assignment, but there's no one you know, on the other side, not just the right, by the way, the middle, the mainstream, talking about what the valid criticisms are of, for instance, prison abolition, just to use one example. But what's the other side of queer studies? Like, what is the, quote, other side? I mean, here's part of the problem. There has been no transparency from the college board, and so no one's been able to see this curriculum. The same thing happened with their new U.S. history curriculum about 10 years ago. And the same reaction happened where people objected to sort of a, a one-sided presentation on some of the topics. But then they said, oh, but we've already printed all this stuff and the textbook's already gone. And so you can't have it both ways. You can't have a lack of transparency and then get mad when people want you to change the curriculum. And I think, look, it's worth stating at the outset here, um, a Black History AP course is a great idea. I think there should be more AP courses. I'd really be in favor of, for instance, a constitutional law AP course designed for high school students. I think it'd be great to have more history breakout. And we've had European history, AP history, for a long time. I'm. It's about time we're starting to get more of these. So the objection isn't that. To say that it's whitewashing to object to the curriculum being presented in the fourth quarter of an, you know, Black history AP course that is designed by a private organization not accountable to school boards who are elected or state legislatures that didn't show anyone the curriculum that isn't even through their pilot program yet agrees that they need to make changes to it. And somehow this is put into a political ping pong fight, you know, where one side's racist and the other side is all goodness and light, I think is exactly some of the problem when we try to talk about education. But I just want, I, I, Mo, I, I want to let you, I know you're, you probably have many, many thoughts. Sarah, I just want to say like it, to me, the dangerous thing, I'm not saying you were trying to be dangerous, but like one side of, and it's like, 
I fear that even if you are just, you know, well-meaning and curious about like, let's talk about queer studies and, and hear different perspectives about that, just using that sort of language could lead to, you know, LGBTQ history and the lesson of, of all of that in, in American society and culture just being taken off the table. Like it's a very slippery slope for things that shouldn't have sides. A quarter of the curriculum, we are told, is only far, far left academic theories. And again, the objection isn't that they're not presenting right-wing theories on this stuff. The objection is there's not even a grappling with the issues and the difficulty and the pushback or the criticism of academic theories that have been around for 20, 30 years. I mean, critical race theory has proponents and it has its critics. So present both to these students. These are mainstream leftist ideas that aren't even being presented because only the far left is being presented. And if we're teaching our students anything, and you know, we're trying to teach them how to grapple with new ideas, how to have critical thinking and reasoning skills, and simply trying to present, like, here's a reading, you need to memorize it and answer questions on just that reading in order to pass an AP exam isn't doing anyone any favors. All right, I promise we're going to pick up right here, Mo, and I'm going to come right to you. We're going to take a really quick break. Uh, we'll be back in a second with more Left, Right, and Center. Thanks for listening to Left, Right, and Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back again with more left, right, and center. We're talking about the decision by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to uh, reject an AP course in African-American studies um, in the state of Florida. Uh, Sarah was just talking about um, what I think, Sarah, you called far-left ideas being at the center of this and that, that a course like this, we should ensure that there are other perspectives that are brought in. Mo, I just wanted to bring you in to, to react to what, what Sarah was just saying there. So the curriculum is actually out there. It's on the NBC news site, uh, so the press has it. All you got to do is quick Google, and you can read the actual curriculum. The point is that, like, looking at it, I don't think it's as nefarious as as um, DeSantis is leading people to believe. Um, we've talked about this before on the show, that that there is tremendous political upside for those on the right to wage a war against wokeism. We get why they do it. It's politically expedient for them. It is the political incentives of division and polarization. The problem is it ends up belittling some people's very legitimate views and concerns uh, and, and sense of self and identity when they are being relegated, when their viewpoints are being relegated to nothing more than wokeism. Um, there are a lot of... So first of all, this is a high school AP class. This isn't like a required class. This isn't like arithmetic in the fourth grade. This is for those college-bound students to, as an elective, to begin to prepare them, as Sarah said, to think critically to, to, in the way that they would in college. There's nothing wrong with that. Number two, there are a lot of students out there who object to the fact that they don't see themselves in the curriculum that's always been taught. 
And so having more classes out there, more opportunities for people who have typically felt marginalized to see themselves in the curriculum, to see history through the prism of their communities and grapple with all the issues that come along with that is a good thing, not a bad thing, and it better prepares students for life after high school. And the third point I'll make, because I know we need to move on, um, but it's getting awfully tiring to hear Ron DeSantis and and his supporters uh, try to wrap themselves in the cloak of freedom when they are doing the exact opposite on a number of issues. When they are shutting down entire courses of study because it doesn't comport with their political agenda or because there's political expediency in doing it. When they are banning books in schools. I mean, there was a Florida school district that challenged and reviewed. Luckily, they didn't. it didn't work, but Martin Luther King's letters from the Birmingham jail. Like, that is the exact opposite of freedom. And so we can have the conversation, and there are some legitimate educational policies that we can talk about. And some, and I think this is actually a good debate to have. But let's call it what it is and not what it's not. And this isn't an argument about freedom. This is the problem is that we're not putting ourselves in the shoes of others. To hear, if you're a student in Florida and you hear that, you're hearing your governor lay down a marker from the highest office in the state about what is legitimate thought and what is legitimate identity to explore. But that's what all schools do. That's what all states have to do. We all have to do that because we have curriculums in our schools. And what we decided as a pluralistic society is that we're going to do that through elected people. What is the other side of queer theory? I mean, that, that's it's what I keep coming that back to. It's like, who's, side. That what has to what would have to exist to, for you to feel that that was that's that's like an OK thing to have in the curriculum? I'm going to try to explain it to you. What we've said is that our schools have to have some curriculum to teach kids, whether it's math or history or anything else. And they're in our communities. And so the way we've designed this is that that's why we have school board elections and state legislatures and that we're going to have accountability in how curriculums are designed. The college board that does AP exams isn't like that. It's an outside group that simply offers the AP exam and it's a take it or leave it situation. And so you can talk about what should or shouldn't be included and pick this like the queer theory thing, which I don't particularly care about one way or the other. Um, but the point is, <laughs> the private organization isn't accountable. And instead, you're rejecting the whole premise of what our educational system is based on, which is all of these communities are picking their curriculum and what's in it and what's not in it. And so to say like this one thing has to be in it because obviously it's in it. Well, that doesn't make any sense because that's not how we do it in any other part of our educational system. Okay. Well, that, that's been pretty heated. And I guess maybe it needs to be because this is the kind of conversation that uh, I hope policymakers will be having raw, honest, and uh, hopefully, you know, impactful. Um, but uh, we do have another guest to get to on the show today. And one other topic I want to cover, I want to bring in someone who describes himself as a citizen of two capital stormed countries. Uh, that is because this author is Brazilian American. He's now watched election deniers riot and cause violence and mayhem in both Brazil and the United States on January 6, 2021 here in the U.S., of course, and then weeks ago in Brazil. But the headline in his piece in the Washington Post, really striking, it says, hug an election denier. Sergio Passania is a graphics columnist at the Washington Post, and 
He describes in his piece hearing both Americans and Brazilians express the same exact thing in different languages, that their election was stolen and thus their democracy is under attack. He says people enraged and horrified by these insurrections should not just dismiss the people who were involved. They should reach out to try and understand them. Um, Sergio, welcome to the show and, and thanks for thanks for bringing this piece to us. Well, thank you very much for having me here. So how did you react personally to, to these two violent events at the U.S. Capitol and then in Brazil? I was shocked by both. I think I think it's very easy for Americans to relate because it uh, doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat. Uh, it was awful to see what was going on here in the U.S. And then for me to see it again in Brazil and hear the people uh, saying some of the same things, exactly the same things, but in a different language. Uh, they were really believing that they were defending freedom, defending them, their country, that they were standing up uh, to this uh, massive attempt to install communism in Brazil, many of them. So uh, I, people were being fooled, and, uh, and it was awful to see that destruction. So what made you want to write this piece? Well... Uh, I was shocked. I, 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 I'm driven a lot by what I feel. And, and I, I participate uh, in, in a WhatsApp group with my family in Brazil. And, you know, I, I think many people also here will relate to that. Uh, who among us doesn't know somebody who really is on the other side and that sometimes we can't even talk to? And I have a sister-in-law who I love, uh, and she was really important to me because she took really, really good care of my dad. Uh, not only she is a great wife to my brother, but also she took really good care of my of my dad when my dad was dying. And so, and she's a lovely person. And when she heard that Bolsonaro had left, uh, had had lost the election to Lula, Bolsonaro is the right wing president over there, yeah. uh, who had just lost the election. So she was so upset that she stormed out of the family group. And uh, and then a few days later, you know, I let her cool down a little bit and reached out to her. And when she heard from me, I said, hey, how are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm so glad you got in touch. I've been dying to go back to the family group, but I just didn't know how to. But I'm, I was so angry that day. I'm so uh, upset that I, that I did it. But I was so upset I was also with the result of the election. And it's so good to be back. Can you hook me back in? And I, and I brought her back in. So, and again, after, after the riot, I got in touch with her to see, to see how she felt. And what'd she tell you? How did she feel? I mean, did she support the riot? No. What she told me was that she was so upset by what she had seen that her uh, blood pressure spiked. She was angry, but there is one big difference between how, the way she sees what happened and what I saw. She was confident that the people who had done that were uh, left-wing uh, activists infiltrated trying to, uh, to foment the violence. Mm. But to be clear, you're not saying to hug insurrectionists. You're saying <laughs> no, to hug people who, who are on the side of believing that these elections were actually stolen and, and are election deniers. What I'm, what I'm saying is that we should reach out to people like my, my sister-in-law. She is an election denier. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I say on the piece, one of my brothers from my blood, <laughs> uh, he changed his WhatsApp photo to a logo that would, uh, right after the, they lost the election, to something that uh, said, I support uh, military intervention in, in, in Brasilia. And that essentially that means he was defending a coup 
He wanted a coupe. Hmm. And uh, what I'm arguing is not that we should go and hug these uh, hug people who attacked uh, the capital or. But what I'm saying is that we should reach out to them, reach out to the people we love, and 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 see them for who they are. And I think that is a that is the first step. Because even if you don't, I'm it's I have never changed my in-laws. Uh, mind on anything, but I haven't really tried that hard, but it doesn't really matter because, uh, you know, I still love her. Why should I, why would that, there be a reason for me not to love her, you know, just because I disagree with her. I think she's deeply misguided, but she's a, she's a fantastic person and I know that. So I'm trying to, what I'm suggesting is that people look for uh, the things that they can relate on the people they love. And we all have many of those people on the other side. Either it can be on the left or on the side because uh, some people think that on the left, especially they think that uh, the, the right is uh, full of lunatics. But no, they have, uh, many people on the other side think exactly the same. And I think it makes no sense. Uh, I also say on the piece that uh, my, uh, among my friends, none of them, is a Bolsonaro support. Everybody is uh, is supported Lula, who is the guy who won, and uh, and and that is a sign uh, that you know we're that may seem to some people on the left that I that I'm you know okay, I'm preserving my sanity. Yes, that's right, but it also shows that we're living these bubbles and we're not talking to each other and not and, I, and not talking uh, it give doesn't do us any any good. But what do you tell someone who's like, I just, I can't speak to my aunt because she's spewing lies and I can't even dare get on the phone with her because it just makes me angry. Like, what, what do you, what do you say to them? Well, I, me personally, when I hear my, my sister-in-law uh, and my other brothers were on the other side, they, they arguing, it just bores me. I think it's just boring because, first of all, they're talking about something that is that is so far from their direct reality. I would say, you know, of course, politics matters on what we do, but it's it's not really like uh, it's our jobs, it's how we go to the grocery shop. That that's life, like how we take care of our families. Uh, that that is life to me. And what I would say is, look at look at the, the people for who they are, you know, and and. Try to. I remember, like I said, in the case of my my brother, I grew up with him. My sister-in-law, she took care of my dad. Like, how can I not love this person? Speaking to Sergio Pisania, he is a graphics columnist at the Washington Post and wrote a recent piece in the Post. The headline is "Hug an Election Denier" because he has uh, watched um, insurrections and election deniers riot and cause violence in two countries: the United States uh, and Brazil. Um, Sergio, thanks for this perspective. Um, Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right, I want to bring Mo and Sarah back because it is time uh, before we end the show for our rants and raves. Um, Who wants to start today? (laughs) Go ahead, Sarah. My rave is for the Pacific time zone. I love it. It's my favorite thing in the whole world to fly out to the Pacific coast just because the next morning I sleep in and yet nevertheless 
am all of a sudden an early riser. And that's not my MO in real life. Um, in my real life time zone, I hate waking up in the mornings. I'm a night owl. And finally on Pacific time, I get to feel the energy and moral superiority that early risers feel. So uh, the Pacific time zone is the best. Wow. And it's where I live. And I do not disagree with you. Watching football at 10 a.m., I'm going to say that is the best part of it. But yes, I endorse. And like when the East Coast goes to sleep and you then get to let like go about your business and yeah. like enjoy the rest of your day without emails and everything else. It's just glorious. Yep. Mo? So our last two conversations today um, made me, I guess, a little ornery. So I'm going to rant. Do it. Um, I-, I love M&Ms. I really do. <laughs> I love all the different flavors of M&M's, plain, peanut, almond, pretzel. I love all the different colors of M&M's. The diversity of taste and appearance is part of the appeal. And I think that's true for most people, except for Tucker Carlson and his friends, who waged a campaign against those adorable M&M candy digital spokespeople that we love from all the ads who are fun and funny and make great Super Bowl ads uh, and made it another uh, example of the culture wars and wokeism. And that sadly, Eminem's parent company announced this week that they were going to stop with those spokespeople. They are now, those spokes candies are the latest casualty in the culture wars. So another Fox host said, in response to the Eminem uh, brouhaha, I think that makes China say, oh good, keep focusing on that. Keep focusing on giving people their own color M&Ms while we take over all of the mineral deposits in the entire world. Nobody's focusing on this, except for the marketing people at M&M and the folks over at Fox News. Uh, I hate that they are now a casualty, uh, but I'm going to keep eating my M&Ms and celebrating their diversity. But we get Maya Rudolph as the new spokeswoman, which is awesome. Be careful what you wish for, guys, because exactly, Mark, Maya Rudolph's going to be much harsher than those uh, cute little spokes candies. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about cookies, if that's okay. More things to eat. Uh, We better be a rave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a rave. I mean, we've we've talked about on this show recently not just believing what you hear these days, like truth matters. Have skepticism, healthy skepticism. Don't go too far and, and like, I mean, not believe anything. Tree octopus, as we know. So this little girl in Rhode Island, uh, she was wondering if Santa Claus is real. So she collected a partially eaten cookie on Christmas morning and delivered it to the police with a hand letter saying, I was wondering if you could take a sample of DNA and see if Santa is real. And the Cumberland, Rhode Island Police Department said they gave the evidence to the state forensics unit and they praised the little girl for having a, quote, keen sense for truth, which is something we (laughs) all need. That's my rave. And that is all the time we have. Thank you, Sarah Isger. Thank you, Moa Lathy. Thank you to Sarah Singer Schiff, who produces Left, Right, and Center. Our production assistant is Alexandra Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. This show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. Thanks for being here. And come back next week for more Left, Right, and Center. Download and subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW. 